0: head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is a show that helps you become a more effective student, including tips on how to study more effectively, uh, tips on getting internships and jobs, and ways to master your money and generally make college an amazing experience. And on this episode, we're actually going to talk about what it takes to get into graduate school, what it takes to get funded to go to graduate school, all the things you can do to impress the people who will be making those decisions on who gets in, who gets that funding, and also beyond that, We're going to look at what it actually takes to get a position as a professor, specifically a tenured professor, one of those holy grail jobs that anybody going into academia or who has dreams of going into academia, dreams of getting and uh, actually what actually we're gonna do on this episode is something I don't do very often, ironically for a college focused podcast. We're actually having a professor on the show. I generally don't have professors on the show. I can't really tell you why there's not really a reason, but uh, I'm really excited to have one on this time. And her name is Karen Kelski. She's the founder of a website called The Professor is in, which is a blog dedicated to helping PhDs master graduate school and also uh, the post phd job markets. And she's also a career coach and a columnist at The Chronicle of Higher Education, so she is credentialed for this stuff. And she also was a former tenured cultural anthropologist professor, and she was actually the uh, department head at one of the schools she taught at. So Dr. Kelsey explains, explains, that's not a word. She explains the unspoken rules of the academic job search and supports clients in their job search both in and outside of academia. And uh, she also has a book that just came out last week. It's called The Professors in the Essential Guide to Turning Your PhD into a Job. And uh, I found it on Amazon. That's how I discovered her work. And I really wanted to have her on the show because she seemed like she definitely knew what she was talking about when it came to graduate school and getting jobs in academia. And this episode covers both ends of that spectrum. So if you are an undergraduate student uh, and you haven't even gotten your bachelor's degree yet, but you've got dreams of going into graduate school, this episode will give you some tips on how to impress the people on the committees, how to write a good essay, what you should be doing when you're an undergraduate to make sure you get into the best graduate uh, program possible, and then If you're in graduate school, or maybe you know, once you get there, there's also some tips on what you can do to further your career from that point, whether it's wanting to go into industry or uh, the focus of this episode specifically is more on if you're looking to stay in the academic world and get a professor position. And uh, I'm really impressed with the way that Karen went about getting her professor positions. It's a really cool story. So stick around for this episode. I think you'll learn a lot. And thanks for listening. As always, you can find show notes at CIGpodcast.com. Click the episode 71 link on that page, and you'll find a summary, links to resources that we've talked about, and also ways you can review and rate the show if you're really enjoying it and want to help it out. So check that out if you want to, and otherwise, enjoy this episode. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So uh, I've, I found your book on Amazon, I like to scroll through the upcoming books list, and um I had never seen a book about turning a PhD into a job, and in fact, my focus is mainly on the undergrad world, so I never even considered what PhDs have to do to, you know, get into their careers and everything. Um, So I wanted to have you on the show, but I was reading your bio, your uncensored bio, actually, on your site, and your story was really interesting to me. So I'd love to get into the graduate school process and what you teach people who are getting into PhD programs, what they can do to get jobs after that. But I'm really interested in your story, and I think it would be really interesting for other people as well.
1: Absolutely. I'd be happy to talk about it. I'm very excited for undergraduates to understand the pros and cons of going to graduate school and what some of the challenges and hurdles are once you're there.
0: Hmm. But what was so, what was your specific graduate school process? Because it seems like there was a lot to it.
1: There was. Um, I actually started graduate school on three different occasions, dropped out twice. And eventually found myself at the University of Hawaii doing a Ph.D. in cultural anthropology of Japan. Um, my first two aborted attempts were um, starting in, a public po- in two different types of public, public policy programs. Hmm. But I pretty quickly discovered that I really wanted to be a classic social scientist professor doing intellectual work. Okay. And that's what I ended up doing at Hawaii.
0: Cool. And so the the interesting thing is you got to Hawaii and you did this whole program and I think you said you were able to get published while you were still in school and you had all these accolades coming in and then you graduated and there was no way for you to get a job.
1: There was deafening silence. <laughs> yes. And
0: I think your site said that like nobody from that program had gotten a job and Like 25 years or something like that?
1: Something like that. Um, The field of anthropology has different subfields and a few Mm. of the archaeologists and primatologists, they had found jobs, but in the subfield of cultural anthropology, nobody had found a job in about 15 or 20 years. And like, far too many PhD students. I didn't know to ask that before I enrolled in the program. I didn't know the placement rate was something to think about. I didn't understand how bad the job market was. And I was in denial. I didn't think it would happen to me. I thought it was somebody else's problem, just like everybody. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was really a shock to me uh, what I encountered when I went on the market.
0: Yeah, so what exactly did you have to do to end up finding a job once you realized that your program wasn't going to help you at all?
1: Well, the first year I went on the market and I applied to about 30 jobs. Uh, And you have to understand, in in a field like cultural anthropology of Japan, there aren't that many jobs to apply for. So 30 was a very large number. Um, And I got absolutely nowhere. And so what I did was I spent the summer doing an intensive self-study where I used all sorts of data that had been gathered by the Chronicle of Higher Education and other places, and I looked at what programs were uh, producing PhDs who were getting the tenure track jobs that I was trying to get and failing, mm-hmm. and I looked at what those programs taught people and the kind of records that the successful candidates had, uh, and by doing that, I um, sort of retrained myself
0: Okay. all so- on my own. So you basically gave yourself a career skills education.
1: Yeah, basically put myself through a career career skills boot camp.
0: I think it's really smart that you looked at the schools that were actually producing job worthy candidates, and then you found the tactics that they were educated on. Mm-hmm. So how are you actually able to find uh, that data? Like, how are you actually able to were you able to find people who had gotten jobs? Did you interview those people, or was it like specific policies that the schools had laid out for how they teach their graduates?
1: There was a magazine at the time called Lingua Franca. It's no mm-hmm. longer published. And it published uh, every month. It published uh, placement updates for, uh, divided by field. Oh, okay. And it showed the field of cultural anthropology, for example. It showed the people who had been placed and it uh, what institution they'd been placed at and, um, and where they had done their PhD. And basically, that was my starting point. And I saw that... And by the way, this is something I do want your listeners to know. I learned then what is still true today that about ten doctoral programs monopolize about ninety percent of all professor hiring.
0: So in all
1: fields. Th- in all fields. Wow. They're not the same ten in fields, but okay. they are very similar, and uh, and there are usually about ten, and the. Predictable candidates are on there. Harvard, Yale, Princeton are on virtually every list for almost every field. And then the other seven or eight, or if you go to 15, say, then they may vary a bit by field. But the fact is that you probably have 40 or 50 options of graduate, but only 10 of those options are going to give you a degree that is competitive. For a tenure track job. So choose very carefully. I did not do that. Yeah. I went to University of Hawaii, which is not on the top in the top 10, (laughs) top 15, top 20, top 30, top 50. And I had a real struggle. Luckily I was able to overcome it.
0: Yeah. So so basically what you're saying is given any field, there are 10 universities that monopolize all the professorships that are given out, basically
1: basically 10 is not a scientific figure. It might be 15, uh, might be, you know, but somewhere in that vicinity. Yes. There it's a real, truly elitist hiring system.
0: So it sounds like a classic case, the 80, 20 rule then basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. So given that you didn't go to one of those universities after you had learned all those job, you know, hiring tactics that those big universities do use, how easy was it for you to get a job? Was it still incredibly difficult?
1: It was, uh, it was, it was challenging. Uh, the main thing that I had to do, um, I had the, the most important thing that someone can do is to have referee journal articles to publish while still in graduate school okay. to go to major conferences and give talks and organize panels, um, and to have major grants. I had all three of those things. So I was for even for coming from a pretty bad department, I had a quite a good record. Okay. So what I really had to learn to do was to act like an important person, uh, to act mm. like I was entitled to one of the scarce professor jobs. And that's what people from Harvard and Yale and Princeton, they managed to do pretty effortlessly. They feel very entitled, um, because they're trained to be by their professors, whereas people from the lesser programs often don't have that same comportment and those same speaking patterns, the same ease and the same experience. And so that was something I had to develop was this comportment of being someone who was worthy of taking that type of position.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, a friend of mine and I have this concept that is pretty similar, where we talk about how it's important to have like a healthy amount of narcissism. Yes. And for me, that means if I go into a job interview, I think to myself, I'm the obvious candidate for this job. I'm going to get it. Even though like I could come up with a thousand reasons for why i maybe not, mm-hmm. it's the healthier attitude is to go in with like that. You said that little bit of a sense of entitlement, like I'm, I need this job because it's, it's basically built for me. I'm the right person yes. for it.
1: <laughs> it's true. There, the, obviously there's a, there can be great dangers to that um, as well. A kind of an arrogance perhaps, but mm. when you're dealing with people with PhDs, They've gone through a five or 10 year program where all they've ever been told is what's wrong with them, how bad their writing is, how much they need to improve, how much they don't know. They have to read more books. They have to read more articles, do more research. So they've been inculcated in this world where it's like you're not good enough. Right. That's the way it is Okay. if you do a PhD. So it gets very difficult to have enough confidence to go into mm. a job interview and really project that kind of confidence that you were just talking about. Yeah. So in for PhDs, it's absolutely critical to really build up that sense of confidence for me. It came from uh, practice. It came from preparation. I wrote out the answers to all the questions they were likely to ask me. And I practiced them and I edited them and I refined them and I showed them to people. And I really got to the point where I had scripts. Not wrote, obviously. can't just sound like a robot. (laughs) And deliver a script. But I had scripts for the basic answers that really made me sound, highlighted my strengths. And that's, I think, I attribute that to my success. Or I should say, I attribute my success to that preparation.
0: Yeah, I think that's really smart. You know, a lot of students, they study so hard for academic tests. But I mean, I guess a job interview could be considered a test and not a whole lot of people study for it. At the bare minimum, I try to tell them to go to practice interviews. But you've actually, I think you took it a step further.
1: That's a great way of putting it. Consider it a test and you have to study for it, yeah.
0: Yeah, so what's the end of that story? Um, Where did you eventually get hired?
1: I got hired at the University of Oregon Okay. in Eugene, Oregon, a marvelous institution in a great part of the country. It uh, was a great job uh, in cultural anthropology and Asian studies, a joint appointment, and I was very happy there. And I had my kids there, started my family, I got tenure and then I got recruited to a better job, better in quotation marks, <laughs> okay. air quotes, um, uh, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Okay. And, um, and continued on my track uh, from there.
0: But you're back in Oregon now?
1: I'm back in Oregon now because I left uh, in the end at Illinois. I uh, was a tenured professor And then I was a department head of the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures. And I spent another seven years there. But eventually I decided I wanted to leave the academy entirely. I left my tenured position, which is almost unheard of. Mm. And I moved back to Oregon. And that's when I started the business that I'm running now. The professor is in.
0: Okay, was part of that because you wanted the Oregon geography and weather back as well. Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: Because <laughs> yes. I'm from the I Midwest. Have,
1: <laughs> I'm from Pittsburgh originally, so I'm not a West Coaster. Okay. But when I lived in Oregon, I fell in love with it. And when I moved to the Midwest, I fell out of love with the Midwest. <laughs> we were not a good match, the Midwest and I. Yeah. And uh, my partner, who is from Oregon, we were really anxious to get back to the, to the West Coast, mm-hmm. particularly the Northwest.
0: Yeah, I've and, been to Oregon once. Yeah. And everyone tells me, oh, everyone tells me it's like, oh, it's always rainy. You're getting you're lucky right now. But I was there. It was perfectly sunny. And just like I went for a hike in the woods and it just blew my mind. We have yes. nothing like that in the Midwest. So especially right. here in Iowa.
1: That's right. You're in Iowa. <laughs> I noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> Wisconsin would
0: be a little <laughs> bit more idyllic, but <laughs> so. So that's super cool. And now you're you're doing the professors then, so You have your book coming out and you help people who want to go through this exact same path. Mm -hmm. But maybe have a few, uh, a bit fewer of the pitfalls and be more prepared.
1: That and also that as bad as the market was in 1996, and it was very, very bad already. uh, It is exponentially worse right now. There's been a uh, 40 year history of defunding of higher education. And universities have decided to tackle the problem of, of inadequate budgets by Basically letting go of their tenure track and tenured professors and replacing them with adjuncts who are hired on a course-by-course mm. basis, kind of on a Walmart <laughs> mentality. And yeah. because of that, there are very, very few jobs. So my clientele right now are facing really stiff odds to get a job.
0: You know, my, uh, my high school English teacher recommended us a book called Beer and Circus which I never ended up reading. But he said it was basically explained this phenomenon, like you said, that all the tenure track professors are getting fired because of budget cuts. So the colleges are now focusing the students attention on football and being part of the college experience to kind of lessen the perception that, yeah, your teachers are not as credentialed as they once were, because the money isn't there to pay for it.
1: Yes, I do want to say the teachers are credentialed in the sense that they all have they mostly all have PhDs, just like the tenure line professors,
0: okay. but
1: they're hired on, a, on a, this adjunct basis. And because mm. of that, they don't have offices, they don't have library access, they don't have benefits, they don't have job security, okay. and they are paid, they're literally paid. I'm not saying this for rhetorical effect. If you calculate their pay and the hours that they spend teaching the university classes, They're paid about $9 an hour, which is less than Walmart.
0: Holy crap. Yeah. And that's years of schooling.
1: Years of schooling. So it's not their credentials. It's their work environment that is the problem. And uh, until the undergraduate students and their parents start complaining about this, Mm. nothing is going to
0: change. So basically adjunct status is the same work as a normal professor, but with none of the benefits. Exactly. Okay. Do you still have an emphasis on research as an adjunct or is it more no. on teaching?
1: No. And this is what I call the adjunct trap because the pay is so low that you have to teach um, 10, 12 classes a year, which at the university level is a, a staggeringly high load because yeah. of the amount of grading, the papers and so on. You have to grade And because of that, you can't do any research. You don't have time. If you don't do research, you don't publish articles. And if you don't publish Mm -hmm. articles, your record lags. And then you can't compete for the tenure track jobs that still remain. So you end up stuck in this vicious circle where you're adjuncting to keep keep alive your search for
0: Mm -hmm. a permanent
1: job. But adjuncting is preventing you from building the record you need to get that job.
0: Okay. Wow. So, so lest we, I'm
1: sorry. lest
0: we scare everyone who once has aspirations to teach or do research away from that track. Um, let's start with simply just getting from the undergrad experience to graduate school. Um, what should students be looking for in terms of selecting graduate schools and how does the graduate school experience differ from undergrad?
1: Um, Undergraduate students who are thinking of doing grad school, um, I don't, because of everything I've just told you, there are some folks who say just simply don't go to graduate school. I never say that. Mm. I never say that. Um, Just be very careful and deliberate about your decision to go to graduate school. Okay. You have to make sure that you go to a ranked program. You remember that, what I was saying earlier about ones that have a good placement rate. Uh, Make sure that you inquire about the placement rate. Uh, make sure that it has um, a robust program with plenty of tenure line faculty or tenured faculty, and finally, make sure that it funds you completely.
0: So it funds you completely to go through the graduate school program.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. So uh, typically, uh, most the the rule of thumb about graduate school is if it's not well, how shall I put it? Never pay for graduate school. That's the rule of thumb. Okay. Never pay graduate school. If you're paying for graduate school, it's a mistake. So don't do it. If you go to graduate school and you get a full funding package, then it's not necessarily a mistake and you might be able to manage it. You, then you have to ask how much are they offering you? And a graduate school funding involves a tuition waiver. So you don't pay tuition. Mm -hmm. And then it involves a stipend that you live on. And it usually involves at this point in time, um, some medical benefits, which is great. Okay. Um, or health insurance, but in any case, um, you have to look at that stipend and you have to say, well, if they're offering me fifteen thousand dollars a year, um, and I'm living in Ames, Iowa, I might be able to make it. Yeah, it'll be rough. You could do it. <laughs> you could just possibly do it, mm-hmm. but if they're offering me fifteen thousand dollars a year and I'm living in the Bay Area, it's That's, impossible. Yep. Yeah, so you have to make that decision. You have to really okay. calculate it.
0: So if all the good graduate programs are the ones paying for those students, then Mm -hmm. I guess by association, the best graduate students are the ones who are not paying for grad school. Then how is grad school itself funded? Is it funded through grants mostly, or is it through the students who do end up having to pay?
1: Um, grad programs are maintained, uh, by university funding. I mean, the university part of a university budget goes toward providing, um, the salaries of the professors who are there Mm -hmm. and then a certain amount of money, a big pot of money that's called the, you know, the funding for the graduate program. And then the professors have to decide how to divide that up. So they might decide to accept 10 students and offer each student $30,000 in stipend, or they might decide to admit uh, 20 students and offer each student only $15,000 of funding. Or they might decide to admit 40 students and then trim that still further, leave a few of them unfunded. But Mm -hmm. basically, the faculty decide how they want to use the money that they're given by the university.
0: Okay. So I would assume that getting into a graduate program where not only is your tuition waived, but you're getting a stipend, is pretty competitive. Mm -hmm. So what should students be doing during the undergrad years to prepare for this?
1: Absolutely. That's a great question because they can do a lot in the undergrad years Mm. to prepare. Um, Obviously there's a few elements of your graduate application. Uh, They will look at your grade point average. Okay. So (laughs) you need to have good grades. (laughs) Um, And they're pretty unforgiving about that because grad school is really demanding, much more demanding than undergrad. So you need to have basically A's. Um, You have to take the GRE exam. And GRE Um, has a, uh, a, a reading comprehension part, a writing part, and a math part. And so you don't have to ace all three of those. For example, if you're going into the hard sciences, they don't really care much about your reading score. If you're going into English, they don't care at all about your math score. Mm. So you do have to do well on that for the field, the area that makes sense for your field. It is quite important that your GRE scores be decent. They have to be pretty good. Okay. Um, You have to um, write an essay, a statement of purpose, and that takes some work to uh, make a good case for yourself. Uh, With a lot of specifics, it can't just be like, oh, I love biology and I've always wanted to be a biologist. You know, that means nothing. Nobody Mm. cares. It has to be, um, I have been interested in biology for, you know, for the last five years because of these influences. I have these experiences. I took these classes. I work with this professor. I did a field school over summer. Be very specific. Okay. Then... There is the letters of recommendation and Mm. you want to have them. And here's the, here's a tricky thing. You want them to be by tenure track or tenured professors, not from adjuncts. Okay. So you need to make sure you're Ah. working with professors and not adjuncts and they should know you pretty well. So you're going to want to build relationships with professors. Okay. And then, uh, finally, and that's sort of a continuation on this last point. You want to have relationships with professors that are built on really working with them. So if you can get a mm. chance while you're in college to do research with a professor, really work side by side with them in the lab or co-publish it, be like be on their, you know, on one of their articles, like a co-author on an article, something like that. That counts for millions in terms of grad school applications.
0: Right. So that was actually going to be my next question because, um, you know, I found some ways to get to know professors as an undergrad just – just very casual ways, but I would assume that research opportunities with professors are probably the biggest way to get into their good graces and get to know them. So are there any specific pathways or best practices for students to go get research internships with professors?
1: Well, it's fortunate right now that um, even at really big college universities where there are thousands and thousands of undergrads, Uh, Even at the, at those big universities, they've come to understand that getting undergrads involved in research is the best way to retain undergraduates and, and, and enrich their experience. So most campuses have a, something like a department of undergraduate research or something like that. Oh, okay. Not a department exactly. It's like an office, office of undergraduate research. Yeah. So if you were to get in touch with that office and try to um, locate the opportunities and resources that they have there, they could help uh, link, hook you up with something. You can also just go to your own department where you're majoring in and say, hey, I'd really like to be involved in research. Are there any opportunities? Um, You could talk to your advisors and your professors and say, hey, I really would like to do some research. Are there any opportunities? And people are usually so thrilled to have an undergrad who's interested in doing research that they'll find some way to accommodate
0: that. Okay, yeah, that's really cool. I was thinking asking the professor would be a good option, but I hadn't thought of actually going to the department chair and asking about opportunities there. Yeah, but that that might even be a better option because you're going to get a person who knows every professor in the department and what they need.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, undergraduates are often intimidated by professors and
0: departments,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know uh, they're actually just people and right. they want to be loved just like anyone else, and they're thrilled. I mean, they're just thrilled. Professors are thrilled when undergraduates want to go deeper into the learning experience. Cool. So uh, I think that people, if you just do a little legwork, you'll probably find a way to do it.
0: Okay. And I think a good follow-up question might be something that a lot of listeners are asking themselves right now. How early on in their undergrad career should they start looking for research? Should they wait until they're junior, senior, or is it something you could jump right into at freshman level?
1: Hmm. Yeah. There's no harm in looking uh, okay. right away. And I know really, high-powered, motivated, resourceful students who manage to uh, utilize every year, every summer um, in college to do something. But if you haven't, if you're already a a sophomore or a junior and you haven't done it, all is not lost because most research does happen for undergraduates in the junior and senior year. So even if you only fit it in in your senior year, That's still great, and that would not. uh, It it wouldn't count against you in a grad school application if you only had that one year, as opposed to like four years.
0: Okay, so there's definitely nothing stopping you if you're a freshman, but absolutely no worries. I forgot
1: to mention one thing. Um, There's all usually all sorts of interesting summer research opportunities that campuses host. Right. Okay. So they usually cost money, though. But, um, but sometimes there's funding and scholarships for them. So definitely check out how you can use your summers and your Christmas, your winter breaks and spring breaks to do research. And you might get to travel and do fun stuff.
0: That's a really good point. When I was, uh, it was the summer after my junior year, I think, um, I volunteered to do video editing for the department on campus that ran the virtual reality applications Mm-hmm. And the big assignment they gave me was filming this like documentary about all these students from around the country who were at Iowa State for it was like an REI program or something. So and they had been able to apply, they got funding to live there for the summer and do the program. And it was like they really liked the uh, the entire experience. They get to build robots and learn yeah. a whole lot of stuff. So definitely, yeah, check that out. Um, yes. Just check into it's not only at your own university. Now right. is is that office of undergrad research is going to be the place to go look for those opportunities outside of your own university? Or do you kind of just have to Google around for them yourself?
1: Well, Google, Googling around always helps, but, uh, uh, but, uh, you could also, um, one of the offices on campus that's always very helpful to undergrads is the office for study abroad. Okay. So while study abroad and research are not the same thing, so don't confuse them, Right, but they may have enough synergy between them that they could hook you up, help, you know, help you understand a, an opportunity that might be research overseas or something like that.
0: Yeah. Or maybe just at a different university within mm-hmm. the same country. Exactly. Okay. Right. So let's talk a bit about the graduate school process. Now, having never been to graduate school, I've heard a lot of terms like graduate school and then there's PhD and there's postdoc. And I don't know the difference between all of them. So is that like a pathway? Is is postdoc like after PhD, which is after graduate? I'm guessing.
1: Right. Okay. Um, it uh, so graduate school refers to the totality of everything, all the degree programs you do after you finish your BA or your BS, your undergraduate. So okay. it could be graduate school encompasses your masters, your MBA your PhD, your master's of social work. I mean, any of those things, right? That's all grad school. Um, typically in a lot of programs, you'll start as a master's student and then finish that, get an MA and move into the PhD program, which you might do right there in the same department, or you might decide, Oh, I, I enjoy my master's here, but I want to go somewhere else for the PhD. Okay. That's a, you can do either of those options. Uh, once you finish your PhD, um, Then uh, there's a thing called a postdoc, postdoctoral fellowship. You don't have to do that. Those are optional. In the hard sciences like biology and chemistry, they're a typical part of a career. So you finish your PhD Ah. and then you go into a postdoc and you stay in somebody's lab and you might stay there for three or four or five years working in that person's research, that professor's research as a sort of a you're better than a grad student. But you're less than a faculty. You're kind of okay. you're a postdoc. You're in between. And you get all this experience. And then eventually you move into a professor position yourself. That's the theory. Gotcha. Um, some people in the humanities and social sciences can do postdocs as well. But those are usually set. They're like one year. They're in a specific program that's hosted by like Harvard or Yale or Michigan or something like that. And then at the end of it, you have to leave. Gotcha. And we hope that you have a job. Again. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that's the, those are the, those are the, those basic terms that you mentioned.
0: Okay. So essentially the hard credential that's required to get a tenure track position is the PhD. And then for a lot of programs, the postdoc program or fellowship, it's helpful to just help you get more um, ingrained with that specific university potentially. Or just more credentials?
1: More credentials. Rarely does a person stay at that postdoc university for their job. But what it means is it's given them more time to research and more time to publish Mm. and build their record up. So then they go on the national job market. They have a a much better record. Okay. competitive record.
0: So is it basically, does it come down to having as much research published as you can get and you can extend your graduate uh, schooling to get more research published? And yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a uh, it's it's a delicate it's a delicate thing, and there's no surefire path to mm. getting a tenure track job at this point. But definitely, the you have to have a combination of a, of a handful of things. You need a uh, you need a good publication record. Uh, like I said before, you need your grants and um, conferences. Uh, you need to have good people writing letters of recommendation for you. Okay. Uh, so they can be from your own dissertation committee, but they can also be from somewhere else in the field. Um, and then, of course, you have to um, have uh, good connections. Really, you know, really have done, you know, used your conferences and things like that, so that your name is out there. So people are like, "Oh, the most cutting edge work in evolutionary psychology is being done by that guy that I met at the conference last month." And then gotcha. they're going to know your name.
0: Okay. So hopefully they know your name before you walk into the interview kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now the, the path from the master's program to the PhD program, is that very similar from undergrad to graduate school where you basically just want to get a lot of connections and you have to fill out an application with the essay and all that stuff? Or is it different in some way?
1: Well, you've zeroed in on the murkiest part of this entire process. Okay. Most of graduate school is actually pretty cut and dry. Mm -hmm. But the transition from the master's to the PhD is really mystifying because every school does it differently. Some people don't offer, some schools don't offer, or I should say some departments don't offer master's. They only offer the PhD. So you come in and you just take all your classes and you do all your requirements and boom, you're headed off toward the PhD process. Other ones have sort of an artificial dividing line and they're like, well, if you do this, this, and this, then you've completed the requirements for a master's and we're going to award you a master's. But then you're still going to just continue on on a continuum huh. toward the PhD. So okay. it's just sort of like rubber stamped on you in the middle of your process. Okay. Other schools have a real dividing line where you do the masters, and then they sort of make you reapply to get into the PhD oh, okay. program. That's not very common, but um, but it's absolutely necessary if you decide to go to a different school. Then for sure you're completely starting from ground zero and reapplying to a different school for their PhD program. Okay. So if this seems a little confusing, it is. It's, it's confusing. You just have to learn what the system is at the places you're interested in.
0: Yeah. And so I don't know if I'm right about this, but I've heard that some schools don't hire people who got a PhD at that school.
1: That is totally correct.
0: Okay. Is that is that kind of like a field wide thing? Like every school does that or is it just some?
1: It's almost 100%. There okay. are a few exceptions. It's. When I've seen exceptions, they've tended to be at the really elite schools, like the mm. Ivy Leagues will only consider, <laughs> like nobody's good enough for us, except it's usually from our own department. We're
0: going to hire here at Harvard. It'll be from Harvard.
1: Exactly. <laughs> uh, or, you know, or, uh, you want, now and again, you see, you see a situation. In fact, my own uh, university, my own department of um, at uh, Anthropology, at University of Hawaii, did it eventually hire a university of Hawaii PhD okay. to teach there in cultural anthropology. But then again, when that does happens, those people usually have to have taught elsewhere first
0: ah, and yeah. then
1: come back. So it, it is not a common thing.
0: So they just want you to get a diverse experience at a number of different places, yes, whether it's in teaching or in getting your PhD. Exactly. Okay. So um, I'm curious about non-academic work. Because I know specifically I'm a business major, so I learned a lot about MBAs and people told me, if you want to get an MBA, don't you dare go get it right after undergrad, go get a couple years of work experience first and then come back and get it. Otherwise, you're going to overqualify yourself and never get a job. (laughs) So um, in your field, is there the same kind of paradigm where there's an expectation that you go get a job outside of academia for a while?
1: Um. Well, I would answer that in two ways. Um, whenever an undergraduate comes to me for advice and says, When should I apply to grad school? I say, Do not apply to grad school straight out of your PhD. Okay. I mean, straight out of your, your, your undergraduate. Okay. Take some time off. But, but for a slightly different reason than what you just described, I, I think that people need to get a life experience. They, mm. they have to, and whether it's working, whether it's volunteering for the Peace Corps, whether it's starting their own startup, whatever people need to get experience. You're not going to have a well-rounded life sustaining experience. If you just go straight through 15 years of, of school, in my, my opinion, I think it's healthier to take a break. So that's why I always tell people to take a little bit of time off. And the other reason is right now, going back to the sort of depressing message that I said earlier about how risky grad school can be financially. Um, I did, I did want to mention one other aspect of that. It has to do with graduate school debt. Okay. But I'll, I'll set that aside for now, but can we come to that? Yeah, you know,
0: definitely. Next. Very interesting, um, actually.
1: Yeah. Um, that because it's financially risky, um, you really want to make 100% sure that you really need to go to graduate school for, to accomplish your life goals. Because mm. if you can accomplish your life goals without going to graduate school, that's usually a better choice yeah. financially at this point in time. So that's another thing is that Undergraduates have that don't know anything else but school. You've been going to school straight through, so really give yourself a break. Learn to see the you know give it yourself a chance to see the great wide world, and you may find other doors opening for you.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the debt aspect because mm-hmm. on one hand, I think I read a statistic recently that some people who want to become doctors end up going four hundred thousand dollars in debt,
1: mm-hmm. which is
0: mind blowing. That's almost half a million. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you said that you should only go to grad school if you're not paying for it. So mm-hmm. um, is it the case that a lot of people end up still going and taking on more debt? Then?
1: Mm-hmm. This is the tricky part. Um, when I said that you needed to have your grad school paid for, I said, you need to do the calculation to make sure that what they're offering you is enough to live on mm-hmm. for the place you're living. Because what happens is even when you're given these full funding packages, if you're given a, a package that has like, um, let's say, a typical grad school package, they're going to offer you four years of funding, a tuition waiver, um, and $15,000 a year. That's, that's like an English. That's if you're going into humanities, like English or art history or something. And you're like, oh, my gosh, $15,000 a year. That's so awesome. And you're excited. But what happens is, is then you move, and it's in Chicago, and you move to Chicago, and you discover you actually cannot live on $15,000 a year. You mm. just can't. And so it turns out you need to take out like a ten thousand dollar loan, and that okay. seems like not that much, right? Compared yeah. to the overall expense, it seems pretty small. But the thing is, grad school takes about five, seven, eight, nine, ten years. So if you take out that ten thousand dollars each year, um, ah. you end up with seventy thousand, eighty thousand dollars in debt from grad school, even when you were fully funded. Okay. So it's a real um, pitfall that's sort of hidden. And doesn't really reveal itself until you're kind of in the program and can't really get out. Yeah. And that's what happens to a lot of grad students. So um, the NSF has data on grad school debt. And apparently the average debt for grad students, not medical students, but just graduate students in the liberal arts and sciences, uh, um, is like $54,000. Wow. And... Yeah, and 20% of all grad students owe over $100,000. Oh my gosh. And yes, it's true. And when I did, um, I decided I got interested in the subject and I decided to create an open source Google Doc spreadsheet about a year ago, about a year and a half ago. And I put it up and I put it on all my social media networks, like Facebook and Twitter and everything. And it kind of went viral and I got like 2,500 responses in the space of about a week. And I asked people to write down their debt and what and why they had their debt. And folks in the sciences and engineering, they didn't have much debt because they were paid pretty well. Their stipends Mm. were decent. Their stipends were like thirty thousand dollars. You could live on that. Yeah. But the folks in the humanities and religious studies, women's studies, and classics and English. They had debt like ninety thousand, a hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand, two hundred and fifty thousand. Yikes! Crazy,
0: yeah. Crazy.
1: So, and I mean, when you say that med students end up with four hundred thousand, that doesn't surprise me at all.
0: Okay, and paired um, with that adjunct so, trap you talked about, where you're getting nine dollars an hour, mm-hmm. that's that's a scary situation to be in.
1: It's a scary situation. So, my you know, without uh, my advice to undergraduates considering grad school. Again, is be very vigilant about I mean it's it's kind of like it's kind of boring. It's kind of boring advice. It's like be really adult about this decision. <laughs> be very, very responsible. I'm like your your parent, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Think about what you're doing. Don't make a rash decision. It might be right for you. It might be. Mm. It's marvelous when it works out, when you have full funding, when it's enough funding, and yeah. when you can use it to succeed. is still a marvelous experience, but there are a lot more risks now than there used to be.
0: Yeah. So say you, you apply for a program, they accept you, they have an offer with the funding and everything. Um, two questions, I guess. One, how can you figure out whether or not that's enough to live on? And then two, if you figure out it's enough, what are your options? Are you able to maybe negotiate for a higher stipend or is it just a case of you need to walk away and apply somewhere else?
1: That's, those are great questions. I'm really glad you asked that. Um, there are two great ways to s- examine whether that, it's enough money. The first is you can use an online cost of living calculator. Mm. For the, There's tons of them. I can't think of any of their names offhand, but I've certainly used them before. Um, just Google cost of living calculator. And okay. uh, and basically you type in the location and you um, type in the salary or uh, and it will give you a sense of, whether you're going to be able to pay rent and manage your other expenses on that income. And so uh, you'll be able to do that calculation very, very easy. Just after a few minutes on the Internet should answer the question in broad strokes. Okay. Um, but the other way to get a little bit grind, you know, drill down into more you know, detailed, personalized information is go visit the campus hmm. and talk to the grad students who are there. That's the most important thing anybody can do.
0: Yeah, that's great advice.
1: Yeah, please. And I know traveling is expensive and you might not if you're in New York and you might it might be difficult to visit Berkeley. But maybe if you also applied to Columbia and NYU and Cornell, at Mm. least you can visit them. Right. And visit as many as you can and really talk to the grad students in the department and say, look, I'm considering coming here. What can you tell me about the program? And specifically, what can you tell me about your level of funding? Okay. And what can you tell me about your placement rate? Those yeah. are the two questions I want people to ask. What's your funding like? What's your placement rate like? Okay, and they'll tell you. They'll give you. I mean, they'll give you more honest answers than anybody else will.
0: Yeah, and uh, so and then and then towards the uh, the option of either getting more funding or dropping out from or just dropping the offer. What are your options there?
1: Oh, that's right. So if you get multiple offers. You can actually negotiate. You can say, well, um, uh, I, you know, I've, I've received packages, offers from um, Chicago and Columbia and Berkeley, and I want to go to Berkeley, but it's the lowest funding. So um, I really want to come there, but can you match Columbia's offer? Instead of 15, hmm. they're offering me 20. Can you offer me 20? Okay. And it, you can sometimes do that. I can't guarantee you that it will work. But it usually does, okay. so that's great if you have that opportunity. Now, if you don't have that kind of leverage for having multiple competing offers, you can still ask, um, and they may uh, be able to accommodate—you know—slightly lifting your, your your stipend level a little bit. Yeah. If they can't, you have to take a you have to consider whether you're willing to take a calculated risk because you could go in knowing that it's not enough. And then you could make a commitment to yourself that you're going to work, like have a part-time job, Yeah, work over the summers, live on ramen noodles, live with five other people in a ratty house. Are you willing to make these um, sacrifices to okay. make it work? And if you are, you can still manage it financially.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure if you're talking to like grad students who are already in the program, they'll tell you – about Rowdy House living opportunities in the city and exactly. all those options.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And don't forget that once you're in an institution, um, there's all sorts of pockets of money. There are tons and tons of little scholarships available to oh, apply great. for. Oh, great. Way Actually, more yeah. than at the undergrad level. At the undergrad level, there really? aren't that many and they're, they're pretty small. Okay. But at the graduate level, there's all sorts of things. And so usually you can find, if you get smarter and savvier about it, you can find things to fund what you want to do.
0: That's awesome advice. Actually, I kept looking for scholarships during my undergrad career and actually won about five or six of them after starting college. So I always tell people keep doing that. But it's really cool to hear that as a graduate student, there's even more funding.
1: There's more. Yeah, I wouldn't
0: have guessed that. So that's cool.
1: graduate school, graduate school fundamentally outside of things like MBAs and professional programs. Well, I'm going to return to the point I started with, much people don't pay for graduate school graduate schools pay for you Mm. and you should expect to get much of what you're trying to do funded and really really work toward that goal and that expectation that if you're just savvy enough you can use all these different sources of funding and cobble together uh, support for your for your research and your and your advanced degrees
0: cool so i know that your book and your blog have answers to probably every question that someone looking for grad schools is going to have. Mm-hmm. Um, one question that I'm curious about that I want to end on is how do you find conferences to go to? Which I actually had a had a, a YouTube commenter ask me that earlier today uh, just in general, but I know you said go to conferences, you know, that's one of the best things you can do to get into grad school, to build your network. So how do you find those opportunities? Cause a lot of people don't even know what's out there.
1: Well, by the time you're considering grad school, you have to have a pretty good sense of what field you want to go into, mm-hmm. as opposed to undergrad, where you might not have any sense at all. And that's totally fine, because undergrad is about exploring. So that's great. But at grad school, grad school is about specializing. Okay. So it's not even enough necessarily to say, well, let me use my own field if that's the best. I'm an anthropologist. It's good to say that you're interested in anthropology. That's pretty specific. But then you want to say, I'm interested in cultural anthropology. And then in mm. my case, I had lived in Japan for quite a while. I didn't mention that about my background, but I knew I wanted to do Japan anthropology. And so for someone like me, knowing that that was what I was going to go to grad school for, I would find the major association, the professional association of anthropologists. And there is one. Okay. It's the American Anthropological Association. And they have a conference every single year. Mm. That's the national conference. It's always at a major city. So, A, go to the national conference of the discipline, the nation, of the, of the uh, National Disciplinary Association. So the psychologists have one, historians. I mean, every single field has one. Okay. Then, in addition, all of those organizations also have regional outposts. So they'll have the Midwest branch, the West Coast branch, the South branch, and the Northeast branch. You can go to the – those are smaller – but they're still great. And so you want to make sure you go to those as well. Okay. And then for someone like me, uh, with my Japan focus, I would look for the association for Asian studies. Gotcha. And I would go to that conference. So they're right then and there. It's really easy for me to find three different conferences that I could go to. Okay. The anthro, the Asian studies and the regional anthro conference. So for all of your listeners, They have to, you know, they can figure that out for themselves based on their little constellation of specific interests. And it's very easy to find where those conferences are.
0: Okay. So you want to take kind of a high level view of your field, find the association for that, but also then drill down into very specific pockets of where your interests lie. And then Mm -hmm. I would guess that also just asking grad students when you're asking them about ratty houses and things they can eat along with ramen noodles, (laughs) What I mean, conferences do they go to? And maybe even right. ask the professors that, you know, you're hoping to become one day, what should I be attending?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Great. Exactly. You know, it's cool. I, I did not plan at all for this to happen, but we're both Japan nerds. So <laughs> I've been there three times. Though you went there and you actually taught for a while and lived there, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I lived there in total about five years. That's I majored awesome. in it as my college major was Japanese studies.
0: Oh, that's so cool. Where'd you live in Japan?
1: I lived in Matsumoto in Nagano Prefecture. Okay. The first time. And then I lived in Tokyo the
0: second time. Awesome. I've never been to Matsumoto, but definitely Tokyo three times at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm pretty familiar with it.
1: How long have you stayed there?
0: Um, The first time, first couple of times were two weeks. And then the last time I was there for a little over three weeks. Oh,
1: that's great. Mm-hmm. I
0: cool. took my girlfriend there uh, back in May. It was mm-hmm. her first time. So Tokyo and then Kyoto and we went to Hiroshima as well. Uh-huh. Just, Japan is so cool. I absolutely love that country. <laughs> Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure, and my pleasure. Uh, yeah, uh, so your book is called The Professor is In, and I'll definitely have that linked up in the show notes, but it's coming out. Well, I guess this will be out when the book is out, but it's August 4th, right? Yes, Okay. exactly. Cool, so yeah, if you guys are interested in the graduate school track uh, and all the questions associated with that, Karen's book is going to be a good resource. All
1: right, thank you very yeah. much. I really enjoyed this.
0: Thank you. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you learned something and you want to continue that learning, you can pick up Dr. Kelsky's book on Amazon. I've got links in the show notes. And also, if you want other resources on making college an awesome experience, I've gotten them all listed over at collegeadvocatecom slash resources. So check them out. And also on the YouTube channel, if you haven't been following along recently, I just got a new camera last week, actually. So check out the latest video on the channel as of this recording, which is tips on how to make your new semester start as smoothly as possible and also maintain long term motivation and study habits. I'm really proud of some of the uh, camera work and some of the editing I was able to get out of this new gear. And also, I think the video is just helpful as well. So check it out. It's over at the YouTube channel. You can actually find it at youtubecom Thomas Frank now. Uh, It's not slash user slash Thomas Frank. I wasn't able to actually change my username, but the folks at YouTube were kind enough to give me a redirect URL of sorts. So uh, YouTube.com slash Thomas Frank will get you to my channel. Otherwise, it's on the blog as always. Thank you so much for listening. Stay cute, and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the College Info Geek podcast. Grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com.